Hey, Animation Friends, if you're not in here, then you're missing out. All right, I, give the, I get the great opportunity to introduce to you one of the coolest directors I know, uh, Scott Weiser. So Scott Weiser and I, have we known each other a year yet? Not even a year. Um, he, uh, we both started Space Station Animation in its infancy and have worked together to start an animation studio that has grown through the roof. He come to the studio with over 10 years of experience animating cool, I don't know, characters like Barbie. <laughs> he animated King, King Julian. Julian. Who knows King Julian? Woo! Right? All right, so we got Scott Weiser animating all these stuff. He's run a, his own animation business for a lot of years, working with some really high-profile businesses, and he comes with a lot of talent. He's one of the, probably the most talented people I know, all of you people from Space Station included. He's better than you. Anyway, um, so he's, he's a really good friend of mine, and he's got some great things he's going to share with you tonight. They give me a big old list of things that I should read off, but whatever. I don't care about that. <laughs> he's my buddy. He's Scott Weiser. Everybody put your hands together. Woo! When you wish upon a star Makes no difference who you are Anything your heart desires Will come to you Like a bolt out from the blue Fate comes in and sees you through and you wish upon a star as dreamers do. <laughs> Why in the world, <laughs> when Disney had already made all of these short films and the breakout hit, Snow White, the first ever animated film. Why in the world would he pick a song from Pinocchio, the second movie, to be the face of Disney animation? It's the, fill, it's the music that plays every time you see a Disney movie. That's the song you hear, right? It's also, if you're an animator, well, I guess I have to point it here. Nope. If you are an animator, it's the face of the book, The Illusion of Life. I don't think that's any coincidence. Before I answer that question, I have other similar questions that have a very similar answer. So why, when there were probably thousands to millions of people telling stories back in Aesop's day, thousands of years ago, why are the stories that we keep telling Aesop's fables? Why do they all come from this slave named Aesop? Or why, when there was a huge explosion in Japan and we had the anime industry booming, why was it one filmmaker out of all of them that is, has become beloved, Miyazaki? And he made 11 films, too. Why did the whole Hollywood industry boom from the early days? And why were there these filmmakers like Cecil B. DeMille and Alfred Hitchcock and Francis Ford Coppola, Frank Caffer? Why do those names just keep coming up? And you watch these fantastic films they've made. Why in the world were they the ones that stood out? And not the theory that I would propose is that they all told deeply, deeply meaningful stories. That's why things stand the test of time. They often have a bit of survival information. It helps us survive. It helps us live better. It helps your love relationship survive. It helps your career survive. 
it maybe helps, you know, your dog survive. Who knows? But <laughs> um, th- that's the whole, the whole premise here. Uh, but for my, my presentation to work, which is called Elevating the Animation Art Form, we actually have to establish that maybe we haven't reached the top of the mountain yet. And I've had, I run the, the Directing Animation live cast, which is not that. Oh, okay. I run the Directing Animation live cast with several different guests, and over and over, I keep hearing these guests say things like, we're not living in the golden age right now. Ed Hooks is a man that he has taught actors to be on Broadway, to be on film, to be on TV. He's done a lot of that himself. He was hired to teach at DreamWorks, to teach acting at DreamWorks, and all the time he's doing these deep analysis of films, of the acting in films, which connects to story structure, and he'll present these to the people at the top studios, and the top studios will say, ah, Ed, it's just a cartoon. And this is, this is a chip on his shoulder. He's like, we, we can't be saying that. We really need to elevate the art form. And then I have other guests like Brian McDonald on the show. Brian gives presentations at Pixar and Disney and DreamWorks, and he says something similar, although he, he credits the whole entertainment industry. He feels like the last good year for great films was 1984, when I was an infant. <laughs> so what is to be done? I actually think this is a really great opportunity. So what is to be done? I actually think this is a really great opportunity. If we're not living in the golden age, we have the opportunity to bring that out. If the studios aren't doing that, we have the opportunity to create deeply meaningful stories and to get them out there. But we also have a lot to learn from the people who came before us. I mean, Ed Hook's actually on my show says something really funny. He's like, we want to be standing on Walt Disney's shoulders, not sitting in his lap. Meaning, let's not just say, oh, you've created this great thing and we're sitting here enjoying it with you. Let's also build like Walt Disney built. Let's also build like Aesop built. Let's also build like Cecil B. DeMille built. And so, looking at those people, I uh, have set on a journey. This is 10 feature film pitches that I have. I'm actually going to start with Vanishing Ink there. When I did Vanishing Ink, I thought, I'm going to write this book, and I'm going to kickstart it, and I'm going to pitch it at a studio, and it's going to become a feature film. And uh, I've learned over the years that that's not the way it happens. The way it happens is you actually keep developing work, and keep making it as deep as you can, and doing your best work in it, and then you do more projects like that, and more projects. And once I got to the unsingable song here on the end, I just decided to do five more all at once. Um, but each one of these has been very important. Vanishing Inc., I did actually pitch it at the studios. I found an agent who was very interested in repping me, and uh, I pitched Cirque du Solitude to her, and she said, it's beautiful, but it's too outside the box. The publishing industry won't make this thing, so you can make it on your own, and I did. I kickstarted both of those books, tried to do a Kickstarter for Layers, and didn't raise the funds, but I was able to find a grant and able to finish that film, and the result of that was I actually had... I did have a producer send their assistant to me asking about a feature version of the film. But what it did even beyond that was it brought in tons and tons of work. Um, the guys at Digital Gravy, they'll tell a story. They told Nathan and I at a lunch one day, and um, they were putting in a bid for this big project with uh, the Church of Jesus Christ Latter-day Saints, and they, it was called The Goal, and it was a seven-minute-long project, and they said, who won that bid? And they told them it was this studio of one, this, this one guy. And... It, it was a really fun story, 
Um, the flip side of that is I actually decided to develop my five feature film pitches instead of learning Toon Boom, so they got the rest of the, the projects after that. And um, Matt Watts, who's going to present after me, he is a fantastic animator. They hired him. He trained it up on an awesome team, and Digital Gravy has an amazing studio going for them. So all of us are developing this stuff together. That's what makes it so exciting. Mass Magic is a book that I had a publisher for, hasn't quite worked out. I actually pulled the book because I, I had a different vision for the project, and I'm going to kickstart it in August. And then The Unsinkable Song is a project that I, I was hesitant to come into Space Station Animation because I almost had this project funded. But Space Station Animation was such an inspiring place that I thought, I've got to jump in and I've got to do this, got engaged with this. And it almost funded a month after I started, but didn't. So made the right choice. <laughs> but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen. All of these things are building blocks to you know, making, making these dreams come true, wishing upon a star, right? So oh, I'm missing some slides here, which is OK. So I was going to talk about how, OK, I've got talent. I'm developing that talent. I've got projects, developing those projects. I've got a team. Team is so incredibly important. One of the slides that's missing here is with Space Station Animation, we have five episodes out, and we have 40-plus million views on those episodes. That's incredible numbers. And that's all thanks to our wonderful team. We have people who work very, very hard, but we also realize that we can't push them too hard without breaking them. So we have a really good system that we've built around them so that they can have time to recover. They can have things that inspire them. They can have things that rejuvenate them. And sometimes it's as simple as a conversation, but it takes really great leadership, like Nathan Riddle and hopefully me, to really get that moving and, and the team moving in the right direction. So let's say we have all those ingredients. One of the other things we really need is distribution, which is, again, why I would mention Space Station Animation, because we have all that distribution. But we're not the only ones trying to create new models of distribution. So the feature film industry, if you look at it and you look at how things are going, you can actually notice that it's really struggling right now. Some would say it's dying, the means of distribution that Hollywood traditionally has. I would put forward the possibility that it's perhaps the level of stories that they're putting out. They're not putting the kind of content that people would really want to go see in theaters. That could be it. It could also be the advent of streaming services. There's probably a lot of different combinations of things, but I still put forward the idea that we can all elevate the art form, we can all tell better and stronger stories. One of the guys doing this is Tom Moore, who I have up here. I got to have him on the live cast. Such inspiring content. And he's, he's playing around with distribution, too. They made their first film not knowing if it was going to be successful. Luckily, it got picked up very slowly, started to spin out there, started to get recognition. And what that project actually did was bring them more projects. So the first film was Secret of Kells. Next project was Song of the Sea. Wolfwalkers was one that Apple came and asked them to do. And so he's finding different means of distribution, but his, his MO is to create the great content first, and then hopefully the distribution will come. Another person doing this is Jalil Sadul. He's the person I nearly partnered with on my project, The Unsingable Song, the big splashy musical that was the yellow poster. And we're still working on it, but what he's doing is he's a work-for-hire studio. And generally, I, I don't encourage studios to do work-for-hire um, instead of original content, like hoping you do the original content, but they seem to have figured out the balance. Because I've seen a lot of studios that get used to the work for hire and how much money that generates, and then it's hard to transition over to the original content. But they seem to have been striking that balance. Then I was going to put uh, Dan Harmon as a slide up here. 
Dan Harmon is with Angel Studios, and their model of distribution is extremely expiring. I don't know if you've seen The Chosen, but the pay-it-forward distribution model was discovered by accident. It was discovered during COVID, where they had all this content with The Chosen, and they thought, let's give it away free for just a little bit. But they came up with the idea, because if you go to a restaurant and you pay for somebody's meal behind you, oftentimes that will actually just keep going on and on. People will just keep paying for each other's meals, and that inspired the pay-it-forward model. They just didn't realize it would work so well. And if you get on their app, you'll see on there that you, put, you push play on one of the episodes, and it says this was paid for you to watch by such and such person in the United States. And then at the bottom, there's a little fundraiser, and they're fundraising episode probably two of season four right now, and you can see where, what the progress bar is on there. So they're constantly crowdfunding within the system, and pretty much people are paying with their money, saying, we love this content, keep making more. So there's lots of distribution options that we, we can try, but they all kind of do have a foundation in what, in what was done before, where Hollywood became a trusted source of entertainment, and that's why we'd pay money, and it was also subsidized by um, treats and, and different concessions in the theaters. So in essence, uh, and we're kind of doing something similar with Space Station, where we have the NFT projects that we launch alongside the animation projects, and that generates income for us, but also makes it really exciting for the community, the NFT community, to know there's really cool things attached to the different digital assets they're buying. So let's say we've got all of those ingredients. We have great content, or at least a great idea. Oh, here's Space Station Animation. It's just all out of order. Okay. We've got all that stuff in order. Um, it's, it's $180 million that Moana cost. I think Incredibles, what, Incredibles 2 was $200 million. Fro uh, not Frozen, Tangled was upwards of, I think, $270 million. Tons of money. Um, we figured at Steamroller that we could do it for a much smaller fraction of the cost, but still, millions and millions of dollars you're going to make this content. It's got to be really good. It's got to hit really hard. It's got to be worth all of that money and all of the team members' effort. So I'm going to put a film forward that I am guessing hardly anybody in here has seen. I've chosen that for a reason, because The Judgment at Nuremberg is a fantastic film, and it's one I could actually tell you, this is how I would write the screenplay, and then you can go see in the, the movie and see how well my ideas hold up. So The Judgment at Nuremberg is a story about an American judge who's called over to Germany to judge four judges who used to send people to concentration camps. And over the course of the story, the question is posed over and over again, which ones of them are guilty and what should the punishment be? And if I were to write this screenplay, this is how I'd write it. The big question that they're asking in the film is, what's the difference between a good human being and a Nazi? And over and over, that's all the story's about, but they did a really good job of creating a spectrum. So all of these judges, when you first see them, they actually almost have the same answer except for one to if they're guilty. They all plead not guilty, and you almost can't tell them apart except for the last one. The last one, he's silent for some reason. You don't know why. Well, that order is actually how much of a Nazi they were that they're presented in the movie. So there's one guy who believes that everything the Nazis were doing was great and that they shouldn't have been stopped. The next guy is, I was just being a good person. I was just participating in what the society was doing. 
That's his perspective. The next perspective is a guy who you could tell that it eats away at him, but he still tries to convince himself that what he was doing was okay. And the last guy, because it takes you a while to know him, um, you, you, you're not quite sure where he sits. And the judge who came to judge him actually goes and reads this guy's books. This guy has books that are used all over the world as an es- established kind of Bible for judges of this is what justice is. This is what justice aspires to be. And so the judge is looking through this guy's book and thinking, I don't know that I could ever incriminate a man like this. So the story goes on and on, but here's the cool thing about the film. The film doesn't have just those perspectives. It has some other perspectives in the witnesses that are called into the trial and also in a woman who owns the house that uh, the, the American judge is staying in where... Uh, she's not even allowed to live in her house, but he's able to meet her, and he goes out to dinner with her and to parties with her several times, just getting to know her and her perspective on the war. Her husband was in one of these similar trials and was killed because of it. He was sentenced to death. So there's that perspective. And then there, this perspective that is probably my favorite in the film is Judy Garland, who's a famous actress, sang somewhere over the rainbow in Wizard of Oz. Um, she's playing a much more serious role here. She is tried, and I won't tell you the details, so you can go see the movie and enjoy the details of, of her part of the case, but she gets so emotional, and the, ju- or the, the prosecuting lawyer is pushing her so hard that she breaks down into tears, and finally this man that's remained silent the whole time stands up, and he pretty much gives up a speech about how everything they, was do- they were doing was wrong, and it's almost a redeeming speech. It's a speech that you think that um, he should be redeemed, but uh, the story goes a much different direction. I won't spoil the ending for you. But the meaning of the whole story, the interesting thing to me is that a lot of times when people write a story nowadays, they think, I have this thing I believe. I'm going to put it in a story. I'm going to have this character prove it to you. But they don't put it on in all the other perspectives. And that was what was so important about that film is all the other perspectives. They give you every chance to sympathize with what the Germans and the Nazis were doing. They even have a speech in there about how everybody in the whole entire world was to blame, and it's a very compelling argument that they make. But that's not where the film arrives. But they were daring enough as filmmakers to put all the information in there and let you as audience members learn and decide together along with the characters. So, fantastic film. I highly recommend it. Uh, I will put a little disclaimer in there that there is some concentration camp footage um, it's, it's gutting. It's hard stuff to watch. And the great thing about it is when you go see a film like this, we don't have to make a film this heavy for it to be deeply meaningful. We do need to provide those many different perspectives. We do need to explore the truth. We do need to be open to viewpoints that aren't our viewpoint, but we don't have to go that heavy. And there are several films who do this well. Um, one that I talked about yesterday was Iron Giant. Iron Giant is a film that has lots of, there's a spoonful of sugar that helps that medicine go down, right? <laughs> There's lots of cool meaning in there. There's lots of actually heavy, interesting things that are discussed, but there's lots of fun too. So you don't have to be extremely heavy in order to make a great film. And to recap, we have the opportunity now because Hollywood really isn't doing it. There there are people trying to do this type of work, but we have the opportunity to come out and do great work. But it's going to require us to do like the old masters did, like Cecil B. DeMille, who did over 50 to 100 films. Alfred Hitchcock did, I think, about 80. You know, so many of these filmmakers did tons and tons of films. We need to do a lot of content, but we need to make that content as great as we can. 
in order to get there. And then we need to find distribution, try new methods of distribution, study human behavior, find ways where we can actually get our content out to the public that aren't traditional but effective. And, uh, and hopefully we'll, we'll elevate the form of storytelling altogether. And I invite you to follow the Directing Animation Livecast, engage with me, and I challenge us all to elevate the animation art form. <laughs> and I think we open it for questions now. Yeah, so if anybody has any questions, there's going to be a couple of microphones on each side. Wave us down and we'll run over and you guys can ask questions to Scott. Ask him anything about storytelling, animation, or anything that interests you about his musical theater career. Anything you want. <laughs> any questions? Sure. So I'm very interested in um, listening to you, how you pitched your, um, your different films or your different books. Um, how deep did you go into your concept before you thought it was ready to be um, pitched to a studio or to the crowd? With the, the books that I crowdfunded, I went as deep as writing the book. Okay. And then I had several people who'd read the book, so I had all of those reviews so they could see the different reactions and that sort of thing. Um, with Layers, the short film, I just made the short film and then put that out there. With Masked Magic, the book, I actually haven't really pitched that one too much. So that pitch is coming. With the unsinkable song, I wrote the opening music number of the musical, co-wrote it with another composer, and then storyboarded the entire animatic, and then gave a good overview of the entire film, and sent that out to producers. So yeah, I, I do feel like you really need to know what the core is before you really send it out. There, there's, it's become kind of a tradition in a lot of the studios, like, I don't really know what this film is, and they're figuring it out, and they're animating it already, and they still don't know what the film is. Um, I wouldn't suggest that. <laughs> but Maybe there's, there's an advantage to that way of working, too. Is there a particular number of views that you want to get to say, okay, this is something that's legit? Or is that, or is that even something you look at? The amount, of, you know, the amount of views can be skewed by very many things. There, there are some decisions that I really respect Sean McBride at Space Station for making where we could do things that are a bit more cringy or we could do things that are a bit more edgy, but we don't go into that territory because we want to build something that has more integrity to it. So I think integrity is more important than views. For me personally, oh, I didn't even mention on the Cirque du Solitude, I had a girl come up to me and I've read your book 20 times and it's my favorite book ever. It describes the kind of woman I want to be. I mean, that was worth writing the book. Yes. That one review of this person that I was able to impact. And it is a book about women. It's something that I actually went around and interviewed women about before I put in what I thought women should be. And uh, fantastic project. I learned so much. I think I learned to be a better father and husband because of it. So, yeah. Sweet. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you for your question. That was great. Hi. I have a question about, um, is there something you think is missing in animation right now or something that there's too much of that you think we could, like, in the industry be doing different? <laughs> well, there are, definitely, there are definitely too many shots where people go, wow. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, and, I, and again, my assertion is that we're missing deep story structure. We put a lot of really intellectually interesting concepts up on screen, and we have, I mean, amazing visuals. There's no contesting the visuals that we're putting out there. But again, I think that that deep sense of meaning, that thing that where you, you leave this, the theater and then that story sticks with you, and you're like, I, I keep thinking about this story. And it keeps coming back to me, and, it, and then it starts to seep into your life, and you're like, wow, I'm starting to live better because of this story. 
There's a film called Sunset Boulevard. The first time I saw that movie, I sat down with my wife and I was like, I need to make some real life changes. <laughs> and uh, I think that's missing a lot. I see it once in a while, but not too often. So, yeah. Any other questions? Oh, hey. Um, speaking about story, right? Like, a lot of times we focus on the technical aspects of animation and art. Um, but what would you recommend um, for people to study storytelling and story structure? Yeah, the big recommendation is go watch The Judgment Nuremberg. <laughs> and, and what that will do for you is it will actually give you a view into, and then compare it with the films nowadays, it will give you a view into, wow, we really are living below our privileges, aren't we? <laughs> you know? Wow, there really could be more done with it. This film is black and white. That's why it's hard for some people to start watching it. They're like, oh, this, this is old. And the style of acting is old. But I promise you, like 10 minutes in, you'll start to forget that because you'll be so swept away by the stories. And yeah, so watch those kinds. And then really do study story structure from as many sources as you, as you can. I really love Brian McDonald's work. His books are really short and sweet. Ed Hook's book, Acting for Animators, is one of those that really opened my eyes in a lot of ways of a different way of accessing story structure, which is the acting and the different, the way the actor works with the material. So, yeah. Awesome, and, and then you. it takes a lot of practice. Like, Vanishing Ink, I, I have a pitch package, and in, pitch pack, in my pitch package for Vanishing Ink, I talk about how I would rewrite it and how, actually, it's actually better suited as a series, which I've learned over the years. So, um, how it would be expanded to a series, but also how I would rewrite the current material that's there. So it's more powerful, it hits harder, it doesn't come across as phony. Because there were a couple beats that did, because I was not a mature writer, and I'm getting more mature now. <laughs> more, <laughs> not completely, <laughs> but working on it. <clears throat> you know, I, I've studied like story structure and I've written scripts and everything, but like how do you actually like go about getting a job as a writer in animation? Because it's been like really hard for me to find a That's a, a really job. good question, yeah. And writing for animation is one of those rare things. You, I see it happen sometimes in, a, in an arena where somebody had already written a really successful screenplay. Like, it was it The Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind that screenwriter wrote for Toy Story 4? I think I'm right on those. I just don't remember his name. But yeah, he already had experience, so he'd already established himself. A lot of the times, the writers kind of emerge from the group. Uh, I think TV is probably different. But again, those people are already in animation. And they also have, a, they have the animation skill or the technical skill, but they also have the artistic skill of story structure. Is that helpful? Yeah, are you like saying I wish that, I could tell you like... that there's a place you can go and like you can go get a job at this studio because they're looking for writers. Mm -hmm. But even us, we, we looked at possibly hiring a writer and we just it didn't quite fit what we have budget-wise and stuff. So I'm writing the, the next series. So is it like better to like get a job, like just start out practicing your writing craft or is it good to like get into animation first or like what would you like go about in that way anybody who's most of the people i've seen become massively successful at any art craft often had like a main thing they were focusing on and then a side hustle and so that's been the choice i've made i feel like that's the best choice mm -hmm. it, and sometimes people have to like work as a waiter at a restaurant while they get their acting gig on Broadway. I used to do musical theater in college, and I have lots of friends who did that. And uh, it helped them to have, like, those Maslow's hierarchy of needs, the bottom needs met, so they could start to self-actualize and discover their voice as an artist or as a writer. 
So I would recommend you finding that thing that you know you can do sustainably and then continue to build on that. Okay, thank yeah. you. So you kind of talked about like elevating the animation art form at like the, the upper level as, as like the, the director or the one pitching the story. How would, how would someone as, who's like just at the, the grunt level at like working at a studio doing like in-betweens or, or cleanup work, how, would, how could we kind of elevate the art form from that angle? Yeah. My first thought on that is Ed Hooks talks in his book about how you, as an actor, actually almost perhaps have more impact on the story structure than even the writer. And that's based on getting into the character's head and figuring out what's going on there and portraying that as honestly as possible. There's a balance there, though, because you could go in and the director's already has all these storyboards and they, they tell you, here's the way I want the scene to be, and then you go opposite and do what the director asks you not to. You're not going to stay employed at that point. Um, so it, you'd have to know the director's vision and then say, how can I work inside of that? But there's lots of ways where you can take a moment that was perhaps maybe a little bit less meaningful and actually add some meaning to it and some depth. And a lot of that comes from studying human behavior, knowing how people behave and different micro-expressions they might do. If maybe they're lying or something, they're saying, yeah, I'm, I'm really happy today, but you can tell on their face with a micro-expression that they're not. As far as in-betweening goes, um, yeah, you can learn a lot about how the animators are doing that. You could have a conversation. There's not, that's not really the model nowadays, right? But if you were back in Disney's day and you were doing in-betweening on 2D animation, you could ask the animator, like, what, what are you thinking about with this character and learn from them? And maybe even give them suggestions on how to even plus it a little bit more. Does that answer your question? Yeah, I think it does. Thank cool. you. I think that's Zach. Thanks, Zach. Yep. <laughs> uh, was it you that had a question? Zach at, messaged me a few days ago and just said, hey, I'm excited to see your presentation. So thank you. Okay, cool. Um, okay, so I have a question. So primarily, I feel like the way that often it's kind of, you're kind of geared or kind of engineered to kind of when you're making stories and pitching stories, the primary concern is always like marketability. Like it needs to be something where someone would like see like a brief ad for this and want to pay money for it. Um, but like, it, I don't know, sometimes I feel like marketability gets, like it always transcends like meaning. So what would your tips be on like trying to balance marketability and like putting in meaning into the work? Or like, would you say like, don't try and balance that and prioritize meaning <laughs> and trust that it will be marketable? Do try to balance it, yeah. <laughs> With Mass Magic, when I pitched that to a friend of mine who knows my work really well, he's like, that sounds very commercial for you. <laughs> but I knew that under that commercial package, I could start to really discover some new things. Yeah, marketability and versus artistic expression is one of those battles that artists are going to be dealing with their entire lives. I know that there's a good saying, and I don't remember who, was it John Mayer? There's a musician who said, I do one for me and one for them. So they do something they know their audience is going to like, and they do something they know they're going to like, and the audience starts to get to know both of those voices. That makes sense. So let me see. There was something else in my mind that I could have told you. but Oh, another disclaimer from this presentation is I want to, I want to elevate the animation art form, but I don't have all the answers yet. This is what I have so far. There's going to be more episodes of the Directing Animation Livecast. And so still figuring all of this stuff out. And that's one of those that I'm still figuring it all out. Yeah. Oh, oh, that was the thing. Iron Giant was not well marketed. 
became a sleeper cult classic hit because it was a fantastic film. One of the best animated films to come out the past 20 years. So, yeah. Awesome. I know Talk Lords got a question, but I want to see if everybody else has a question first. All right. This guy has a question. <laughs> yeah, his name's Taco Lord. I love it. Thinking about being a, a leader within a studio and giving notes to artists, <laughs> and um, you have a vision for the project, they have the story, you have the story guiding you. How do you deliver feedback in the context of the story and addressing technical notes and things like that? Yeah, this is a really good question. And actually, everybody can apply this question. You sandwich the feedback. You put the feedback in between two compliments. And you make sure that the feedback is not with the intention to ever tear the person down, but it's with the intention to elevate that, that person's craft a little bit higher. I will tell you, though, you could deliver the best feedback to some people, and they still won't take it well. So it's, there's also a matter of learning how a person works and what their inner rhythm is and communicating a little bit before you give like really in-depth feedback because sometimes you might, you might step in the wrong way and, and they're suddenly offended and you didn't mean that, right? Your objective, my objective as a, as a director is to go in and help. So yeah, communication is one of those tricky things where the, often the effectiveness of the communicator is determined by how the message was received, right? Not just about how it was given. So it's a working progress. It's, it's challenging. <laughs> Great question. All right, no Okay, Taco Lord. So in your live cast, you ask a lot of people about how to get the highest concentration of truth out of a story or into a story or into an animation. What, what have you found from asking collectively these people, how do you get the highest concentration of truth into a story? Yeah, the answer is always different, too. A lot of times they'll say the way you live life and the kind of life experiences you have and really engaging with life. Or somebody will say, well, you have to really be true to who the character is. Or they'll say, um, what other answers have I gotten? Honestly, it really comes down to that. <laughs> Those are the answers I hear the most often. And uh, my answer would be what I presented with the Judgment of Nuremberg, where it's getting all the perspectives into the room somehow, into the story somehow. And then... And then even after you've done that, you have to be very economical with how you tell the story. One brilliant thing about Judgment at Nuremberg is at first you have this language barrier. You have Germans versus the Americans, and they don't understand each other. And so at the beginning, they're kind of, they have translators and intermediaries, but there's one point where it's the drama amps up a little bit, and all of a sudden, the guy who you know doesn't speak English, he only speaks German, starts speaking in English, and you completely accept it. And then they were able to streamline the story so they didn't have to have all that translation going on but they did a proper job of doing it so that the audience just embraces, embraces it right away. So yeah, the highest concentration of truth, I think you have to really be searching for it yourself and not just say, oh, this is the popular opinion of today. That must be the truth. We're going to look back on ourselves in 20 years and say, did we really have it all figured out? There are many things we won't. But we will, I think, look back and see different pieces of art and different films and different songs that were like, they actually hit on something there. And it's still relevant today. I hear that all the time about really old work. So thank you, Taco Lord. <laughs> all right, more questions. Scott Weiser is here to answer all your questions, no matter what they are. <laughs> all right, of all the songs you've ever sang, what is your favorite song? It's, uh, it's Mama Says. 
Mamas. Prove it. <laughs> oh, man. Do it, do it, do it. I have nine minutes. So mom, <laughs> Mama says is about this guy. I think his name is Willard. I was almost in Footloose, and our principal came in and canceled it, and we were so dramatic, we thought he was the biggest beast ever. But <laughs> he wasn't. You know, he was just doing his job. But, uh, yeah, I almost played the part of Willard, and it's in Footloose, and it's, that, it's the character who can't dance, uh, which is funny because I can dance, but I'm not going to prove that. <laughs> Don't ask me to prove that. But, uh, yeah, so that's, this is that song. So I guess I'm going to sing it for you. <laughs> Everything I ever learned that gets me through the worst I learn at my mama's knee. But every time I'm turned around, I turn to mama first. And you'd be wise to memorize what mama says to me. Now my mama, she ain't been wrong yet, and I'm living proof. Mama says don't use a toaster while standing in the shower. Now, who could argue with that? <laughs> Mama says, don't hold your breath for longer than an hour. <laughs> the woman knows where it's at. And Mama says, it doesn't matter if you're a king or you're a clown. Once you drive up a mountain, you can't back down. Now mama says, don't drink hot chocolate while lying down in bed. Don't even give it a thought. It's a mess. Mama says, never eat anything that's bigger than your head. Is she a whiz or a what? And mama says, it doesn't matter if you're a king or you're a clown. Once you drive up a mountain, you can't back down. Now, mama makes a lot of sense if you know how to listen. She is clear and concise. Daddy says, well, I love her son, but she's got marbles missing. But I say, hey, it's free advice. And what do you expect at that price? Mama says, what you believe in is all you really own. And I believe that she's right. Mama says, well, if you've got doubts when the boy are not alone, just means you're ready to fight. And Mama says, it doesn't matter if you're a king or you're a clown. Once you drive up a mountain, you can't back down. Ladies and gentlemen, Scott wait, Weiser. Wait, 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 wait. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I just thought of one more thing. Now, Mama says, don't buy a chandelier unless you've got a ceiling. Now, I don't know what that's about, but Mama says, don't chew on tinfoil unless you like that feeling. Somehow she figured that out. And Mama says it doesn't matter if you drive a hard bargain or drive around town. Once you drive up a mountain, you can't back down. And that's my mom. Woo! Now, 
Now, ladies and gentlemen, with a voice like that, Scott Weiser could quit his day job, but I hope he doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I'm sticking with Space Station. <laughs> All right, we got time for another question or so, if there is time. Otherwise, yes, you guys can follow up that. Holy cow. <laughs> It's kind of fun. My team is watching from Denver. Oh, and so awesome. they're all slacking me and they're like, is that guy really singing? <laughs> but uh, you yeah, mentioned, I was really singing. <laughs> it was amazing. It. <laughs> they're loving it. You had mentioned that uh, it's important to keep your team fresh. And so maybe we're talking about burnout. How do you help prevent or heal burnout in the work that we do? We work really hard, long hours. Yeah. And how do you stay fresh like that? That's a really good question. <laughs> um, and it, it comes from having lived it. So I feel, I feel like in all the work that I've done, uh, I've worked in several studios where they require you to work overtime. And I always feel like that slowed me down. And so I started to find this internal rhythm of this is when I charge up and this is when I slow down. And actually harnessing that and finding ways throughout the day to charge up. And then knowing and listening to myself as I start to wind down that I was actually able, without doing overtime, to be one of the fastest members on various teams. Um, it also helped me to know little tricks on how to get things done a little bit faster. And so those are the kinds of things that I'm always talking to the team about and encouraging them on. Um, Nathan Riddle does, he actually can maybe speak more to this because he's such a wonderful person and he cares so much about everybody. And so he's always having those conversations also and helping people to, you know, maybe take a day off. It's okay, maybe work just a little bit less so you can recharge. Maybe bring something into your workflow that, that helps you move a little bit faster. So hopefully that's a good answer. I'll find out. They'll slack me. And <laughs> yeah. They'll say, man, that didn't cut it. Have him sing the answer. <laughs> so. there, was a, there was another hand up over here. All right, microphone come behind you. So I, had a, I, I thought of another question. What, is, what do you find most rewarding or, or most, like, personally fulfilling about the work that you do? I think that um, my personal opinion is that meaning is more real than anything else. Um, so even, a, even the chair that we have right here is made of atoms, and so that's mostly empty space. So how real is that chair? <laughs> you know? But meaning is extremely valuable to us. And so as long as there's meaning in it, and as long as I'm learning more and progressing more in that way, then that's the most valuable thing. So sometimes that comes down to the interaction that I have with Nathan and the other team members. Sometimes that comes down to, oh, I learned this great thing. I've got to put it into this story. Or sometimes it comes back down to this story has something to teach me. I don't know what it is yet. But it's so fun to explore and learn about it. So, Awesome. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. All right. We're coming down to the wire. Two and a half minutes left for questions. That means there's probably like one more question. But before I let anybody give that question, uh, just a reminder that after this, Matt Watts, I believe. Matt Watts is coming up next. Make sure you stick around to listen to him as well. And uh, he's going to give you some more great insights. Um, but as we wrap it up, do we have one last question? Yes, right over there. You are the winner of the day. Last question for Scott Weiser. Oh. So winner of the day, um, I'm going to do something a little unconventional. Can I ask? Are you going to sing to me? <laughs> I, I could. Somewhere okay. over the rainbow. <laughs> sure. 
Hey um, up high. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I didn't know who you were before this. I was really glad I came by and, and uh, jumped in. My name is also Scotty. Um, Scotty. Would you mind if I came up and shook your hand to come meet you officially? Oh, yeah. I'm going to be here the whole weekend. You can all shake my hand. <laughs> oh, well, I'm, I'm going to come up and do it. If that's it's just right. a normal hand. <laughs> wow. Scott. It's, just, all, it's really awesome to meet you. And you're this, this has been so inspiring and so cool. And Good. I just wanted I'm to glad. say thank you for everything. Appreciate it. Thank you. See, that's what made this all worth it. Woo! You know? <laughs> so. All right. That wasn't a true question with any depth of it. <laughs> sure no, it was. was. I asked him if I could shake his hand. And he you're said right. yes. That was pretty rad. <laughs> thanks, Scotty. And thanks, Scott. Um, okay, one minute. Anybody got a short question for a short answer? Of all time, favorite animated film. Are you really going to do that to me? Yes. Pick one. 54 seconds. 53 seconds. Watch it every day? Every day for the rest of your life. Only one. Yeah. Um, can I watch just every... Like, if I could watch every Miyazaki movie every other day, like... Yeah, just line that up for 10 days and then put that on repeat. I can do that. <laughs> Miyazaki, good answer, good answer, yeah. winner! <laughs> All right, guys, that's 30 seconds to go, so we're just going to wrap it up right here. Thanks for coming to see my buddy Scott Weiser. Stick around for Matt Watts. Thank you so much. And thank you to the Salt Lake Animation Expo for putting this on and bringing all of us together. You guys are rad. Thanks, Scott. Thank you. Girls who ain't on TV cause they got more than the models. The good life. So keep it coming with the bottles. So she feel booze like she bombed out of Apollo. The good life. It feel like Houston. It feel like Philly. It feel like DC. It feel like VA or the Bay or Yay. Tell me what's good. Why I only got a problem when you in the hood? Welcome to the good life. Like I'm doing the hood. The only thing I wish. I wish it. Welcome to the good life.